Father, we thank you for a spectacular morning in which the sun shines through, a reminder of the fact that every morning, 24 hours a day, you keep the spheres in motion. You keep the cosmos together, and you do so for your glory. Father, we thank you that we here this morning have this honor at this hour of studying your word, and we pray that it will be to our hearts all that you would intend to shape our souls, reconfigure our minds, and reprogram our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we have seen in the structure of the Gospel of John, we're only in John chapter 12, but already we are at the point of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's because John helps us to see so much in detail of what is happening now that the hour of Christ has come. Now, we're going to see something interesting about that this morning, but it is really interesting that from the very beginning of the Gospel of John, John's helped us to understand that Jesus has been waiting for his time, for this hour, and when this hour comes, it comes as the culmination of all the prophets have foretold. We see that even in this passage. And of what Jesus has been doing in both what he has said and what he has done. When we left last at chapter 12, verse 40, we were reminded of John's two citations here as Jesus cited Isaiah, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, notice that we're told that he had done many miracles, many signs in verse 37 before them, still they did not believe in him. And Jesus' explanation is the fact that Isaiah had foretold this in Isaiah 53, and then in Isaiah 6. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Twice in his earthly ministry, Jesus refers to this text as an explanation for a pattern of unbelief. So we had better pay attention to this. This is a text from Isaiah chapter 6, and you'll remember this is the call passage of Isaiah. This is the, the theophany that Isaiah experiences when he was in the temple and saw the vision of the Lord high uh, and, and lifted up with his train filling the temple. This is when Isaiah saw the seraphim, uh, each with uh, six wings, and heard them cry out to one another, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is, the whole earth is filled with his glory. This was when Isaiah saw the reenactment, uh, in this case, a prefiguration enactment of the atonement that would be accomplished by Christ. You remember that the prophet cries out, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So it's a confession of sin, and then one of the seraphs flies to the altar and takes a coal and touches his lips and says, your lips are healed, your sins are forgiven. It's a, it's a picture of Christ's atonement that is to come. And then comes that call passage, so whom shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me, which we love to use. Uh, we generally stop there. That's a problem. Because immediately after Isaiah says, here am I, send me, then the Lord, through and to the prophet Isaiah, offers the words that there will be resistance and rejection to what he preaches. 
And it's put in terms of divine sovereignty. He has blinded their eyes and has hardened their heart, lest they should believe or see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. The first time Jesus uses this passage is in Matthew chapter 13, where the disciples ask him, Lord, why do you speak to them in parables? That's interesting. So the very teaching in parables led the disciples to ask, why are you doing that? And it's one of those questions that I'm just incredibly thankful the disciples ask, because I'm not sure I would allow myself to ask it. But it does authorize the way we should read the New Testament, in this sense. When we see Jesus do something, or in a particular way, tell a story, we need to ask, why did he do that? Because at times, the parables do not seem to have been tremendously effective. Now, how do we measure effectiveness? Our cult of effectiveness means we want to see visible, positive response. Well, maybe, maybe Jesus wasn't looking for visible, pos- positive response. Maybe part of the point is that believers are to note patterns of how the gospel is heard and how the gospel is both accepted and rejected in order to understand what's normative. One of the things we need to note is that Jesus did not set up his disciples to believe that we would be better treated than he was. And we shall see that in the Gospel of John. By the time we get to John chapter 15, Jesus is going to be saying to the disciples, you know, a servant is not greater than his master. Why did you think you were going to be better treated than I will be? And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't use techniques to make himself better understood uh, in the sense that we might, in the sense that we might think, you know, the, the rejection of the gospel is a simple misunderstanding, right? We, and maybe it is at times. It can be a misunderstanding. But Jesus makes very clear when it is understood, it divides the room. And in this case, divides the nation. This is the triumphal entry, but there is unbelief even in the midst of this passage. Now, Jesus goes on and explains. In verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, there's a bit of explosive disclosure here because we're being told in John chapter 12 that there were many of the temple authorities who believed in him. That's a pretty astounding claim because where are they? Who are they? Isaiah, we are told, had said these things because he saw Christ's glory and spoke of him. But Isaiah spoke of those who did not believe, whose eyes would not see and ears would not hear, their hardened hearts. But there's an explanation that is given for why there were temple authorities who did not follow him, even though they did believe in him. It's the fear of the Pharisees. For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. We saw that in John chapter 9, the healing of the man born blind, his own parents, who knew that Jesus had given their son born blind sight. They did not follow him because 
We are told in John 9, they feared the authorities. They didn't want to be cast out of the synagogue. Well, you see the same pattern here. But glory is the issue in verse 43. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is a persistent, overwhelming biblical theme. Uh, Part of being made in the glory of God is that we are capable of a certain glory and we are incredibly attuned to glory at the human scale. And we have to make a choice between which glory we will seek. That's a major biblical theme, the glory of God or the glory of humanity. And the, the fact is that the glory of humanity is very tangible and close. The glory of humanity is glorious. It really is glorious. Human beings are capable of the, uh, the, the most glory-attractive and glory-bestowing customs and traditions and, and patterns. Uh, we, of course, understand this because we're made in the image of God. This is why we, we, we seek glory, in this case, a public recognition of greatness in a way that is distinctive to those who are made in the image of God. So there is no evidence that other species seek glory. Uh, but we, we do seek glory, and there's a sense in which to be human is to seek a certain amount of glory. Uh, I hope this is I hope this is not improper for me to insert at this point. But uh, Benjamin, Katie's four-year-old, had something covered on his bed. And Katie came in, and he had this thing covered in his bed. And what Katie was about to experience was an unveiling. An unveiling of a piece of art made of Legos that Benjamin had built. And Benjamin set it up with a little bit of drama, and he pulled the blanket off of the objet d'art and uh, held it up. And it was because it was Lego, it was multicolored, it was tall, kind of the figure of a man, kind of. And Katie said, what is it? And he said, it's the Washington Monument, but with hands. <laughs> and uh, that's exactly what it was. It was the Washington Monument with, with hands. And... Uh, then Katie said, well, you know, why do you like it? And he said, I just like it. It's beautiful. And uh, he says, beautiful. And then at one point he turned and he says, I don't think you think so. We <laughs> have the video, we're just watching this, and it's just so glorious. This sweet mom, this four-year-old boy, and probably for the first time in his life he recognized that, and he articulated, I don't think you like this as much as I do. But uh, he liked it enormously, the uh, Washington Monument with arms. But to me, as I was thinking about this text, you'll forgive my uh, family reference here, it just came to mind. Here's a four-year-old, and a four-year-old unveiling a Lego statue is now an act of glory, the unveiling, the awe that is to, uh, that is to follow. And of course, it's easy to uh, heap glory upon a four-year-old. Uh, but 40-year-olds are still seeking glory in one way or another. And I was reading just the other day when I was in California of uh, 
how difficult it is for professional sports figures uh, to, uh, to live, say, 10 or 15 years after their retirement because the glory has passed to someone else by then. And so, you know, someone still wants their autograph, but it's just not what it once was. Glory fades, and of course, glory turns to nothing. There is nothing more glorious than uh, seeing glory completely destroyed. Uh, in, uh, in the early 1990s, I was invited when I was uh, editor of the Christian Index in Georgia, I was invited to be a part of a, uh, a delegation to go to Panama. And uh, it was not controversial. There was no reason why there should have been any particular frontline significance to it, except 48 hours before we landed in Panama, the United States Armed Forces invaded Panama. And uh, some of you will remember that the uh, dictator of Panama was a man by the name of Manuel Noriega. And uh, all kinds of things were going on. But anyway, they were invaded by the United States, and we landed 48 hours. It was a fascinating thing. When, the first thing we landed, uh, all the lights were off at the airport. And I mean, no landing lights. We had landed, thankfully. But we landed, then the entire airport went dark, and then this plane went by us and uh, in the dark. Only later did I find out everything went dark because it's one of those diplomatic moments when if it doesn't, if the United States government doesn't log the flight, it didn't happen. And it was actually a uh, Russian airliner taking off with Mrs. Nor Noriega to take her to exile in Cuba. You know, we didn't see that happen. It didn't happen. But uh, just as soon as, we were 48 hours and uh, they had destroyed the Comandancia, which was the headquarters of Manuel Noriega. So Manuel Noriega is now completely, he's under arrest. The Comandancia is in ruins. But the amazing thing is, was to see all the tokens of glory smoldering. And there, I mean, all this gold fencing, and everything is just smoldering. This was a glory that had once been the symbol of the power of this, uh, this dictator, and now it's, uh, it's completely gone. By the way, a little footnote, I was the very first journalist to have an interview in print with the new um, president of Panama, uh, President Indara. And uh, so he was desperate to get some word out. I happened to be right there at the scene of the crime. And uh, so I had the opportunity to interview him, and, uh, but I interviewed him in the cathedral in Panama City because that was the only place he would be. He was so afraid of being assassinated that he sat in front of the Pieta statue in the cathedral because he thought no Catholic assassin would dare to shoot him in front of this because it might damage the, uh, the statue of Mary holding Christ and send his soul to hell. I thought, okay, well, that's, this, is, this is where theology meets real life uh, in the oddest way. But there was no glory to this new president. He was hovering in fear in the cathedral. And it's just a reminder of how fast glory can come and how fast glory can go. And um, we're going to decide what kind of glory we want. And the, the glory of this world is incredibly attractive. I, uh, I, we all know it is. We just need to admit our, to ourselves, whether it's crowning with glory in Little League or crowning with glory in the Oval Office or Hollywood. I mean, just the Hollywood award shows, these things, they, they, they are to me the most horrifying display of, of false glory. And uh, 
you know, but nonetheless, we, we honor human achievement. Uh, most, most professions, at least, would do so a little less uh, overdone than those uh, award shows. But nonetheless, what kind of glory are we going to seek? Again, verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Well, it's easier, I think, for us to understand the first part of that phrase than the second. I think it's easier for us to understand the dangerous allure of the glory of man. But what does it mean that we should instead seek the glory that comes from God? Because it's, it's very interesting. It doesn't just say the glory of God or God's glory. It is the glory that comes from God. Well, in the New Testament, we are actually told what that looks like, uh, or at least what it will look like. You have the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy as he comes to the end of his earthly ministry, and he says, I am ready uh, to die, basically. I've run the race. I've finished the course. And, and then he says, I have saved up for me that crown, uh, which I'll be given on that day. So it's an eschatological glory in the greatest sense. Uh, God glorifies himself by giving glory to those who have served him, those who are his own, those who are in Christ those who have rendered service in the name of Christ. There's a glory now or there's a glory then. Now, here's another very important aspect of this. And the greatest witness we have to this other danger is Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century. And so Martin Luther said that the great theological danger, kind of the ur-heresy, the origin heresy, is a theology of glory. Now, what he meant by that was not that our theology should have no glory in it, but a theology of glory that obscures the nature of the cross. And, and Luther had a very specific manifestation of this, which is the entire infrastructure of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, so I, I point out to people often that a Catholic would have a difficult time worshiping in here. I mean, in this room. I mean, with you, but no personal insult. Uh, I mean, this room. This room just does not cry out a theology of glory. It, it doesn't. This calls out a theology of preaching and, and worship and simplicity. Uh, there, there is, there's nothing glorious in this building but you. There, there's not. There's, there's, no, there's no gold filigree. Uh, there's no architecture of mystery. Uh, there, there, there's just nothing. There, there's, there, there's no uh, Michelangelo. There is no Brunicelli. Uh, there's no Botticelli. Uh, there's, there's nothing. Uh, go to, go to St. Peter's or, or go to any, any Catholic church, even a neighborhood Catholic church, and you see at least proportionately some attempt to display glory. And, uh, and it's because they We'll talk about the glory of the Mass. But remember, Luther reminds us the Mass is the perpetual crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which, as, as Luther says, is, uh, is not to be encompassed about and hidden within uh, attempted acts of glory. In other words, the cross is the cross. And so we sing songs like the old rugged cross. We haven't sung this one, that one here in a long time. But 
you know the song, The Old Rugged Cross. And that, that, that is not a theology of glory. It actually talks about that, that, uh, that the, the last part of, uh, of, of that hymn is uh, awaiting the glory uh, that is to come. But right now, it's an, it's an old rugged cross that we preach. A theology of glory is represented in priestly vestments and ceremony and, and all the rest. And aesthetically, I like all of it. Uh, that is, I like the architecture, I like the, the history, I like the tradition, I like the music. Uh, not Catholic so much as Anglican. I am Baptist in theology and Anglican in taste. I really am very Anglican in taste. Uh, but I'm not Anglican, especially since if you do have a building like that, your theology tends to conform to the building. And your, the entire impression is just differently than it would be. It's different than it would be otherwise. So we have to choose which is that glory, which glory we seek. Is it the glory that comes from man, or is it the glory that comes from God? It's a bestowed glory. Then the passage continues. You look at verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, now, now, now what does cried out mean? It, it, you know, if we say a child cries out, uh, that generally means some kind of urgency. And, and urgency is here, but it's, it's not an urgency like he's crying for help. This means he raises his voice so that the crowd hears. So John helps us understand, here he's talking to the disciples. This is a more quiet conversation. Here he cries out to be heard by the crowd. And the crowd is large, as we know. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Now, fascinating, this is, this is looking forward to John chapter 17. Or just even a passage like, I and the Father are one, as we have seen. Jesus here is just abundantly clear about a two-directional argument. And uh, we need to catch both of those directions. One is, if you believe in the Father, you really will believe in the Son. If you know the Father, you will, you will know the Son. But also, if you know the Son, you know the Father. And, and so the, both directions are insistent in the biblical text and in the teaching of Jesus. But Jesus here is saying, as, as they are looking at him, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And so... Footnote number one here, this is an absolute refutation of uh, the kind of Jesus-only non-Trinitarianism that you find in some Pentecostal circles, um, in a figure such as T.D. Jakes. It's uh, really the ancient heresy of modalism. Here you have God show up as Father, here you have God show up as Son, here you have God show up as the Holy Spirit. Uh, this Jesus-only kind of non-Trinitarian theology. Jesus won't have it, especially in the Gospel of John, just in the structure of what we're talking about here. Here, he makes the distinction between the Father and the Son, but makes clear their unity. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He who believes in me actually believes in the one who sent me. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit will come in just a couple of chapters as Jesus will make clear that he is sending the helper, he is sending the encourager. But, but here, Jesus says, follow the logic, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, and that means alone, 
but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now, boom, this is, this is somewhere we better think for a moment. We better pause here. What did Jesus just say? Because now, now the verb is see. What does, how does see function here? Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now, just remember that the see has to mean more than physical sight because Jesus has just cited Isaiah 6 in which we are told that the pattern of unbelief was hearing they would not hear and seeing they would not see. For with their eyes they will not see and with their ears they will not hear. So seeing here means more than just vision. It means believing sight. It means understanding, seeing, believing, acknowledging. But there's something else to this. When Jesus says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Well, in Colossians chapter 1, we are told that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, a very similar kind of passage. But what we find in Colossians chapter 1 is that Jesus is, is the icon of the Father. And uh, we as Protestant Christians don't believe in icons in worship except for one, and, and that is Jesus. And that is not a picture of Jesus, it's Jesus. He is the exact representation of the Father. So insofar as God the Father has been ever visible, it was consummately infinite visibility in the Son. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. Now, there's a distinction between the Son and the Father, but there's a unity between the Son and the Father, so much so that to see the Son is to see the Father. This is, this is how He functions. A part of what it means that He is the firstborn of all creation, a part of what it means that He is the only begotten Son of God, a part of what it means uh, that he is, full, he is truly God and truly man, is that to see Him is to see the Father. So the, the verb see here is just carrying an awful lot of freight. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So thinking here about John chapter 12 and these comments where Jesus cries out, so these are public comments, he's raised his voice that he can be heard by the crowd, there's a sense in which we're reminded of the fact that this crowd, or at least a large part of this crowd, has been with Jesus before, and they've heard what Jesus has said, and, and so Jesus is picking up single-line reminders of what have been much longer passages, and this is one of those right here. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Well, just think back to the opening of the Gospel of John. This is, this is, this is what we were told. We were, we were told that he was light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And over and over again, we have that refrain of light. I have come into the world's light so that whosoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Well, this is a really important argument because light is a metaphor for God in the Scripture. Light is a metaphor for revelation in the Scripture. And light is a metaphor specifically for 
the gospel. The light has dawned. Christ has come. So even as a light is a metaphor for Christ, it's a metaphor also for coming to faith in Christ. It's as if the switch is turned on. It's as if the darkness is now light, but the choice is clear. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Darkness is the default. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not enter to judge the world, but to save the world. Let's finish that thought. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. A word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, this is where we understand a lot of the cheap superficial theology of popular evangelicalism. I'm going to quote a liberal theologian I knew personally who said something in a message that I was, and I was a very, very young man when I heard it. I was, I guess, 18 or 19 years old. And I was in an unusual context in which at that age, I was in close proximity to this very famous man, and he was generous with his time, and he even sat around with a bunch of college students talking to us. He was one of the most sophisticated and eloquent figures I had ever known, very dangerous in that sense. But I can remember him saying this. He said, Jesus is God's way of getting over a bad reputation. Okay, now to my 18-year-old ears, that sounded really interesting. Jesus is God's way of getting over a bad reputation. Well, uh, there's a huge problem with that. You're there already. Uh, Because what was being implied was that the mean old judgmental Old Testament God sent Jesus to say, that's really not who I am. Now, at that point in life, I didn't know enough to understand everything I was hearing. I knew enough that that statement really set my mind to thinking, because there's a sense in which I was immediately attracted to it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. I mean, this, this is who God is. And there's a sense in which, of course, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the, the coming of Christ, did correct many wrong ideas about God. But Jesus did not come to uh, solve God's reputation problem, to help God get over a bad reputation. But if you do say that, if you do say that, Jesus is God's way of getting over a bad reputation. And if you mean by that, that Jesus' love and compassion and grace and mercy, in the Old Testament, God is a God of justice and righteousness and wrath, then, well, you've got a big problem with what Jesus says about judgment and with what Jesus says about why he came. This is an incredibly sophisticated argument that Jesus is making here. It's incredibly specific. By the way, this is one of those passages that just affirms to me and to my heart over and over again 
the veracity and the truthfulness of Scripture. Because it's clear this was not written by a mere human being, certainly in haste. It's, it's just not. Uh, the, the interconnections and interaffirmations of the text betray to me the fact that there is a divine mind superintending this entire process because otherwise there's no human author or editor who could have possibly achieved what is, is found here. Just think of this. Jesus here says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Now, that's the way we should read this, and we're going to see why. It, it's the I do not judge them, and, and, and that means also for now. Um, but there is a judge. He says, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Okay, so Jesus did not come to judge the world in his incarnation, but to save the world. And then in verse 48, as you see, he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. Jesus is saying that he came in order to speak, in order to be, in order to achieve for us eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. He came in order to save. That's what he says here. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Okay, hold that thought, though. Hold that thought for just a moment. Let's think of John chapter 3, the most famous passage, certainly in the New Testament. John chapter 3. Let's look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so good so far. Everybody knows that verse. But look at verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. You can see immediately how this is reflected in John chapter 12, the passage we're looking at. So in John 3, we were told that Jesus didn't need to come into the world to condemn the world because the world was already under condemnation. No incarnation, no divine invasion is necessary to bring one, I have no measurement, ounce, millimeter, to bring judgment into the world, to bring condemnation on the world, None is necessary because the world is already under infinite condemnation. The, the coming of Christ was not necessary to bring condemnation. The world was already condemned. And look at chapter 5. This is really important for us to understand. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, then the Son does that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father 
raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Okay, so as you follow through here, you'll see when He talks about judgment. And, and then look at verse 28. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He's granted the Son also to have life in Himself, and He's given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So you will have Jesus talk about that hour, when that hour comes. So we saw Jesus talking about when my hour comes, my hour has not yet come. So it turns out Jesus has two hours, okay? There are two hours there's an hour of redemption and there's an hour of judgment. And John tells us about both, or you should say, Jesus in the Gospel of John tells us about both. Now is the hour of redemption, but coming is the hour of judgment. Jesus didn't come in this hour to condemn because the world's condemned already. He came in this hour to save and he does so under the authority of the Father. It's exactly what he says in John chapter 5. It's the exact language. He is doing this under the authority of the Father. The Father has sent him to do what he is doing. He speaks from the Father's authority. When he speaks, it is as if the Father speaks. And I know that this commandment is eternal life, Jesus says. So the Lord has given him, the Father has given Christ, the Father has given the Son a commandment to teach. And you say, what is that commandment? Well, in the commandment here, that's the summary of the entire gospel. That's what it means. That, that, that's the commandment. The commandment to believe and be saved. And that is the commandment that the Son has been given. That is the commandment that the, the Son has obeyed. That is the commandment that the Son has preached. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. the most consummate picture of obedience, his obedience in coming, his obedience in every moment of his earthly life, his obedience now even as he is headed for trial and torture and death, his obedience to say and to do only what the Father has sent him to say and to do. Now that all of human history is coming into the vortex of this hour of Christ, Christ says, I'm not going to do or say anything that is not the direct commandment of the Father. I and the Father are one. So here we are, the end of John chapter 12. And it's as if all of these different dimensions of what we already know from the Gospel of John has come down to this concentrated moment. And that's exactly what John wants us to see. Time is quickening. Meaning is thickening. And it's all because Jesus is now in Jerusalem. And he will not leave Jerusalem before he is crucified. And all of these things happen according to Scripture. So there we are. It is so good for my heart to go to a passage like this again and again 
and see how the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is revealed in Scripture in such a way that we find our hearts compelled and our beliefs knitted together again, knitted together according to the same pattern, knitted together for the same purpose. Christianity is not a bag of doctrines and truth claims. It is a composite whole, and it's good for our hearts to see it whole. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful you've given us the opportunity to look at these few verses this morning, and Father, we exult in them because we exult in you. May this word take residence in our heart to conform us to the image of Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.